This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Today, my topic is Lazarus and the Immortality of the Soul. Now, this is an odd kind of juxtaposition because, you know, uh, when we're talking about Lazarus, we're talking about the scriptures and we're talking about a doctrine that really essentially belongs to faith, the resurrection from the dead, you know, the rising of Jesus and our rising with Jesus to new life. Uh, however long, deep, high, or low you go in philosophy, you'll never find a verification of that. Uh, it remains a matter of faith. Whereas the immortality of the soul is something that does lie within the purview of philosophy. Is there a soul? If there is such a thing, what is it? If there is such a thing, uh, does it, is it mortal or immortal? Does it, does it have a life that is destined not to perish? Or is it perishable, it's much like the souls of other forms of animal life? Or plant life, you know, because of course, as you know, Aristotle says that uh, even plants have souls. Just to say that something is soul is to say that it's alive. It has a principle of life within it. So everything that's living has got a soul. The question is, is that soul, can it, uh, in the form of a human person, uh, can it live forever? Um, Oscar Kuhlman, I believe it was, contrasted the doctrine of the immortality of the soul with the resurrection from the dead and concluded that actually the immortality of the soul is not really scriptural, that the, the, what the scriptures tell, teach us about death is that we rise in Jesus, not that there is a subsisting rational part of us that resists decomposition. So, I mean, so, uh, so you have here a kind of a question where faith is, operates on one side of the ledger and reason uh, lies on the other. Now, since be because the resurrection of the dead is a matter that belongs to faith, I'm not going to be able to successfully bridge the gap between them on this topic, but I can lessen the gap, okay, uh, and at least have the doctrine of the rising of the dead, such as is presented in John 11, with the rising the raising of Lazarus, that it may give a clue to the nature of the soul and in its condition after death. A clue, nothing more than that. No demonstration, but a suggestion. All right. Um, to review, or to go back uh, quickly over the question of the immortality of the soul, it's, it's actually one of the supremely difficult questions in, in, Saint Tom, uh, in interpreting St. Thomas it's one of the most supremely difficult questions in philosophy. The difficulty, as we've said, uh, comes from the problem of uh, describing the soul as form. Uh, the problem in one way disappears if you think of the soul simply as the real human person, which is by its nature immaterial and which is attached to a human body per accidents, or at best with a relationship to the body that is puzzling. Um, but you can account for that. That's why Neoplatonism is in some ways congenial to Christianity and why it was so congenial to the fathers. What's most real is what is immaterial, not material. What is most intelligible is immaterial rather than material. So the immortality of a rational human being is, on this view of things, not surprising or mysterious. Indeed, it is what you would expect. But the problem comes when you uh, think not in a Neoplatonic key, but in an Aristotelian key, where you think of the human being as, like all material realities, uh, as a composition of form and matter. See, the soul is the, the form, the substantial form of the human being, but on Aristotelian terms, that is a form which if it's to exist concretely and really, must exist as forming matter. It can't, doesn't exist outside of its condition of relationship of form to matter. At the same time, the body, the human body, uh, cannot exist without being informed by soul. If when the body ceases to be informed by soul, when the matter seems, uh, ceases to be formed by form, uh, the, the reality simply disintegrates. And since there's really no um, 
matter for the form to be form of, it itself must cease to exist. So the natural and obvious uh, question uh, to the immortality of the soul, if you're thinking in Aristotelian terms, would be to say that the soul does not survive death. Now, there's a counter-argument to that, which in fact Thomas relies on, and which seems to me, well, what do I know? Uh, but it seems to me uh, to um, be convincing is that there is, uh, that human rationality deals with universals and sense knowledge deals of its nature with particulars. And there's no way of getting from the particular knowledge of senses to the general knowledge of uh, of the idea of the mind, there's no way of doing that uh, without saying that the power of the mind, which can deal with universals, must itself be non-particular and therefore universal. It, it, how do you put that? It, the, the way you'd put that is to say that the, uh, the intellectual power of the soul, with its capacity for abstracting from particular sense knowledge, presupposes a power and therefore a nature which is itself immaterial. And the, the consequences of that, of course, is, is if the soul is immaterial, it can't break apart. You, it simply can't be, it can't decompose, and if it can't decompose, it can't really die, and if it can't die, it simply will remain in being. So, um, that, in a very brief sketch, is the, uh, the defense for the immateriality of the soul and therefore its immortality. It all rests on the nature of intellectual knowledge and its capacity for abstraction and universalization. All right. Now, um, the pr the, this, does this solve our problem? No, it really does not. Because the mode, if, even if you were to concede that the soul continues to exist, the question is, how does it continue to exist? Or what does it continue to exist as? And this is a great problem. Um, what is the soul in, the, in its separated state? Is it a substance? Is it a thing? Well, if you were a Neoplatonist, you could say that the soul is a substance. But you're not, on this supposition, you're not a, a Neoplatonist. And so the soul doesn't exist as a separate thing. It's, it's not a human being anymore. We, we talked about this yesterday. Uh, when we pray to Peter, properly speaking, we are requesting something of that thing that once was known as Peter, which is a bit, a bit different, you know. Um, Hello, you who were formerly known as Peter, we salute you on the feast of your chair. <laughs> it's a little awkward, but uh, <clears throat> the, the artist formerly known as Prince, the, the, the entity formerly known as Peter, we salute you. All right. Um, but what, is it a substance? No, it's not a substance. All right, well then, is it a property? Well, no, it's not. The soul is not a property of a human person. It's not. It's not like your hair color, or your your weight, or your height. It's not like that. It's uh, it's not a property. It's not an accident. So, what is something that is not a a substance and not an accident either? What is it? Is it a person? No. Is it a, a vestige of a person? I suppose so. How then does it exist with rational powers? I don't know. Does it become a new substance? Does it become a new thing? Does death uh, uh, involve the substantial change of a human being into something essentially different? Well, then what is the thing that is still existing and yet is substantially different? What is its own proper substantial form? It doesn't have one, except in relationship to, to matter. So we're puzzled with something that's real, but whose nature is, I think, more mysterious than, uh, than we commonly think about. All right. Um, 
Now, I'm the, my only point in rehearsing all these these conundrums is to say to hope that we may find a clue and uh, to to these difficulties in the story about the raising of Lazarus. Now, the story of Lazarus is essentially the story about Jesus. It's not mostly about Lazarus. It's mostly about Jesus and specifically in his identity as the good shepherd. Um, Jesus, in his relationship to Lazarus, manifests and makes known his quality of Jesus specifically as the good shepherd. And he's the good shepherd who becomes the good shepherd as he dies for his sheep. Consider this. The raising of Lazarus is the last of the signs of John's gospel before the sign or the revelation of the glory, which is his death uh, raised up in glory. If I am raised uh, raised up, I will draw all people to myself. That is the sign in the gospel. But before that, the final sign that belongs to Jesus' earthly ministry is, in fact, uh, the raising of Lazarus. The first sign offered by Jesus and the last sign offered by Jesus are oddly parallel to the first sign offered by Moses in Exodus and the last sign uh, offered by Moses in Exodus. What was the first sign of Moses uh, to before Pharaoh? It was turning water into blood, right? That's what he did. He turned water into blood. What was the first sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John? It's the wedding feast of Cana, where he turns water not into blood, but into wine. To be sure, uh, the wine is also his blood. This is my blood, which will be shed for you. But it's the blood offered in the context of a feast, a wedding feast, the wedding feast of Cana, where where drinking his blood is really drinking the festive wine of the uh, of the reign of God. Okay. Anyway, uh, the the uh, the water turns to blood for Moses, but the water turns to wine for Jesus. Now, what's the last sign of Moses in Exodus? The last sign, of course, is the death of the firstborn. He when he goes out and strikes the firstborn of the land of Egypt, of not just the Egyptians, but their slaves and the the animals too. I mean, the angel of death is pretty thorough here. He completes destruction high and low, rich and poor alike. They all are killed, the, the firstborn of every Egyptian and every offspring of the Egyptians and every animal of the Egyptians. They are all doomed to death by the angel of death. What is the last sign offered by Jesus in the context of his earthly ministry, in the context of the Gospel of John. That is not the death of the firstborn, but the life of a beloved son, Lazarus, who was beloved of Jesus, beloved by Jesus. It's, uh, Jesus comes not bringing death as his last sign, but bringing life. So the first and the last signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John make it clear that the, that the essential sign of Jesus, the meaning of the sign of Jesus, is that he turns death into life. Now, to get at this, I want to uh, consider there's a long buildup to the story of Lazarus in the Gospel of John, and it begins, I think, in John chapter 8. If you will recall... In chapter 8 in the Gospel of John, that is the, it's in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, and it is the climactic, long, and bitter argument between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, That argument between Jesus and the Pharisees ends climactically with uh, the, the Pharisees wishing to take up stones to kill Jesus. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And at that point, they lose their patience and begin to take up stones and, and begin to, uh, tr- to kill him. They have a lethal intent. 
So there is a terrible argument with the Pharisees that could have and would have ended in Jesus' death had that been his precise hour. The Pharisees say of Jesus when he makes his claims he's possessed. And why are they saying that he's possessed? Because Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And when he claims the divine name, because I am is the divine name, I am who am, uh, when they knew very well what he was saying when he said that, and by their lights, they were absolutely correct. This is blasphemy, you see. I mean, if I were to go around saying that, you know, uh, if I began this talk by a solemn announcement, I, man, I solemnly inform you before Abraham was I am, uh, you would not stone me, but you might suggest counseling. <laughs> and medications. You know, have you taken your meds yet today? That's how we stone people today. We, uh, we diagnose them as maladjusted, misfits, uh, unintegrated, or whatever. You know, uh, that's but actually, I've given the choice between being stoned and being diagnosed as in need of psychiatric attention. <laughs> I would take the latter. Um, we have made some improvements. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> anyway, they say uh, he is possessed. And as I say, by their lights, they had every reason to say that. Before Abraham was, I am. They, he, they pick up stones to kill him. He leaves them. Um, what is this fight about? Well, I want to say that it's really about uh, Jesus's identity, which is found essentially in his relationship with the Father. The same one who says, I am, also says that I and, and the Father are one. There is an unimaginably close relationship. Indeed, in one respect, it's a relationship of identity between Jesus and his father. And this is what they can't deal with. He says, before Abraham was, I am. A clear claim of divine identity, but also an equally clear claim to uh, that identity being grounded in his relationship with the father as the son. He is the unique son. Um, now, by extension... Or implication, then, uh, your relationship to Jesus as God's son is also your relationship with the Father. You can't really have a relationship with the Father without going through the Son, and you have no relationship with the Son unless the Father, as John says in chapter 6, unless the Father has drawn you. So, and anyway, your own personal status is at risk when Jesus becomes visible to you. You see, Jesus can live a long time, you can live a long time without hearing Jesus' claim. Uh, you can live and coexist with Jesus for a long time, but this coexistence is doomed to come to an end because sooner or later he will manifest his claim to you. He will say, this is who I am, and everything, and, what, and the, the hard, the horrible, the difficult thing here is that if you accept him, then you accept the fact that you, your own personal reality is cast not autonomously by your own decision, but is a matter essentially of relationship, that you are who you are, if you are, by virtue of your relationship with him. Now that is a, a, a frightening thing to say. Again, just by extension, uh, if, you, if we were translating that into the psychological jargon today, and if you were faced with someone who made that kind of claim, uh, you would say this person had boundary issues. <laughs> you see? Uh, the idea of where I am, that's what you would say is a boundary issue. A, boundary, a person with a boundary issue problem is somebody who doesn't know where their own identity begins and ends and doesn't realize how their own reality doesn't get to define someone else's reality. Part of being a separate uh, a person, part of being a person, 
the Enlightenment got this right, is that there is a relative independence between people. Whoever you say you are, it doesn't define who I am. But with Jesus, there is no safe boundary here. He claims not only that he is the son of the Father, he also claims that your relationship to the Father and your innermost reality exists and only exists in relationship to him. Uh, we see the phenomena, uh, the same biblical teaching, I mean, at least anticipated, in the story of the Exodus, where the, the, uh, the children of Israel leave Egypt and go to the Promised Land. Do they leave a state of alienated labor and, and subjugation for a status of free, rational citizens of a, of a republic of equals? No, they don't do that. They, they, uh, they move from one sort, form of servitude to another, see? They, don't, they, don't, they haven't anticipated the French Revolution in 1789. Uh, what they've done is they've replaced lords. Pharaoh was their lord, now God the Father. Uh, I am who am. Now he is their lord, but their, their existence still depends upon their relationship, you see. Their existence depends upon their relationship. And um, that's what Jesus is claiming. Your existence depends upon your relationship with the Father, but through the Father, through me. To the Father, through me. This is an outrageous claim. The only, the only answer you can make to this kind of claim is acceptance, radical acceptance, or radical rejection. Ultimately, Jesus presses that issue upon us. There, do you remember, did any of you, any of you Flannery O'Connor fans? Um, okay, good, everybody. This, every right-thinking <laughs> right Catholic is a, is a Flannery O'Connor fan. Anyway, there's that, that one, I think, to my mind, the best and unsurpassed story in the collection is A Good Man is Hard to Find, where you, where you have the misfit, and he's about to shoot the grandmother, and she says to, under her breath, Jesus, Jesus. And he says, yep, that's right. Jesus is the only one who ever raised the dead. And he, she said he should never have done it. He should never have done it. Because if he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. But if he didn't do what he said, then it's nothing for, for you to do but kill your neighbor, burn down his house, or some other meanness to him. See, Jesus was the only one who ever raised the dead. Everything depends on this, then. Everything depends on him. If you accept him, then you throw away everything and follow him in one form or another, but you do. You throw away everything and follow him. And if you don't, ultimately it comes down to burning down your neighbor's house or doing some other meanness to him. Nihilism, despair. That's an unsettling claim. It's one that no human being can make. It, it, it would be monstrous for any mere human being to make a claim like that. So consider what this is about then. The, 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 the fight with Jesus about the Pharisees is a, is a fight about this. Jesus says that if to his, those who have initially accepted him, that if you continue in my word, you will, they will be free. If they accept the relationship with Jesus, the prize of this is freedom. But this freedom that they gain by their relationship with Jesus will be a con uh, contingent upon an, an illustration of their status as sons of the Father. If they believe in Jesus, they will be sons of the Father. Jesus goes on to say that uh, they will not be slaves, but they will, be, uh, they will have a place in the household of God contrasted with slaves. The slave does not remain forever. The slave has no permanent place in the household. But if you are adopted as sons, if you are a son, the son remains forever. That's interesting because it has echoes in the business about the immortality of the soul. The, there's a kind of link here between the promise of Jesus that you will remain forever and uh, how will you remain forever? Well, that that is to be determined. But the promise is that you are a son, a member of the household, and just as a son abides and remains forever in the household, so you, if you are properly related to me, will also abide forever and remain as, as children of the Father. 
there's a promise of, of permanent permanence, everlastingness to our relationship with him. They will have a place in the household. They will remain forever. And Jesus goes on to say that they will never see death. Any man, amen, I say to you, anyone who believes in my name will never see death. That seems robustly counterfactual. <laughs> but... Um, uh, but but there's a, but but it's still true, and we, we and our business is to see how it is true. You see, um, okay. This leads us to. I was going to talk about chapter nine, uh, which is this, uh, the continuation of this controversy. You see, Jesus has just re, uh, defined the real problem, and the Pharisees have made a decision against him. But Jesus moves on, and he meets. The, the man born blind. And uh, this is an extension of this claim that he has made about his personal identity. What does he do? He sees the blind man and he takes mud or clay and he spits on it and he makes a kind of a paste and he places it on the man's eyes. I don't think it's fanciful. I, 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 I say this with some trepidation because... Uh, uh, a really great exegete who lives in our house in Cincinnati has told me this is nonsense, <laughs> and he knows better, but I still think I'm right. Uh, <laughs> it has to do with uh, the, making mud, the earth, spitting on it, and fashioning something that cures blindness. I, th I, I, I swear I hear in this an echo of Genesis where God takes the mud of the earth, you know, and then forms it and breathes life into it, makes a man of it, you see. It's, restor it's the creation of man that we're talking about here, right? When Jesus, uh, when you enter into a relationship of discipleship with Jesus, uh, Jesus makes you man. He makes you woman. It is a recreative act, see, you are constituted in your normative humanity by this act of Jesus breathing life into you. And uh, it's signified by this, by uh, the symbolism here is that the eyes of the blind man are opened. Somehow seeing Jesus is seeing life. See, do you as the man is able to confess Jesus when he sees him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? What does Jesus say? Who is he, Lord, that I may believe? Jesus says, you are looking at him. And at that point, when he saw him, he said, I believe, Lord, and worshiped him. So it is for judgment that I have come into the world, Jesus says, that the blind may see and those who see may be struck blind. But we said yesterday that seeing is connected to eternal life, that that's the primary metaphor to discuss entrance into the life of God. Well, that's what happens in the blind man. He is made whole in his humanity. He is made man, and in his being made man, he is given the gift of sight. And the sight, the true sight, is the sight of Jesus as, as the son of man, the son of man. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, all of this is a description of the implications of relationship with Jesus and its central importance. Now, well, Jesus, again, to be one more note, minor note on this. As Jesus gives the man sight and cre recreates him in his humanity, he also defends the man against the Pharisees. He's expelled from the synagogue for confessing faith in Jesus, and Jesus goes to his defense, you see. He acts as the good shepherd of the man that he has restored to his full humanity. He is the good shepherd in recreating and guarding this man from the consequences of conversion. All right. Now, in chapter 10, Jesus elaborates uh, what it means for him to be the good shepherd. Who is the good shepherd? It's the one who gives his life for his sheep. In chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And I know mine, and mine know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So there's a mutual knowledge, a mutual seeing, 
that entails caring for the sheep, and that caring for the sheep is entailed entails for Jesus laying down his life for the sheep. He's not simply a good shepherd because he guards them. He's the good shepherd when he dies for them. In chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus goes on and he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, he says, and they will never perish. Never perish. Somehow, abiding in life that never perishes consists in having a relationship with the good shepherd who lays down the life, his life for the sheep. That's where eternal life is going to be found. That, uh, that intimate knowledge of Jesus, of his disciples, is, entails Jesus dying for his disciples. He never comes to know you unless he dies for you. The knowledge of Jesus and the death of Jesus are tied together. He knows you in his death for you. There's an old story, or a, 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 and it's a Christological uh, a point, really, that people have wondered what Jesus saw from the cross. And uh, one of the answers given that is given his omniscience as God, he would have known every one of the sheep that he died for, you see. His death for us and his knowledge of us is somehow coterminous. This trajectory continues and finds a kind of climax in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. It's the uh, we finally come to the story of uh, Lazarus. Jesus, um, of course, has been in trouble in the, in the story. Uh, Jesus has just been in Judea. And he was just the recent uh, subject of an assassination attempt. They had, uh, the Pharisees had at this point in the gospel, a lethal interest in Jesus. Um, but Jesus then, so it wasn't a safe place, but then at the report of Lazarus' illness and death, he went back into Judea. And therefore, he went back into mortal danger. Jesus going to see Lazarus was Jesus going to see Lazarus in the context of a deadly threat to his life. It was not without cost or expense or risk, you see. Uh, he was putting his own life in danger for Lazarus' sake. Here we see Jesus for Lazarus fulfilling his words, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life or I am willing to lay down my life for my sheep. See, uh, notice, have you ever wondered why John um, makes, the, makes Jesus to be Lazarus' friend? Let me read that to you. Here we are in chapter 11. Yeah, Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. See, the, the, the ever, this is in the context of the Good Shepherd discourse, you see. So, uh, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. In that context, Lazarus comes up and he occasions Jesus' risk to his own life. Why? Because he loves them. Because they are his sheep. Because they are the ones he knows, you see. So, that, I mean, it's not just a personal idiosyncrasy of Jesus that Lazarus happened to be his friend. Uh, there, was, uh, there was more to it than that. Lazarus becomes numbered as one of the sheep for whom Jesus gives up his life. So Jesus then, in going to Lazarus, unleashes events that lead to his death. How, why is that true? Because, you see, it, when Jesus did raise Lazarus, the story got out, and the, that was, it was that that prompted the Pharisees to say, uh, this man works many signs. Uh, if he does continues this way, all the world will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and we will lose our holy place. It was in the Gospel of John, the raising of Lazarus, that was the final straw. It was that that set in train the motion, set in motion the events that would lead to his death. Now the synoptics are different on this count. Um, for them, uh, their interpretation is that it was the destruction, not the destruction of the temple, but the, the um, uh, 
demonstration in the temple or the overturning of the the, the tables and the, so forth, uh, the, uh, the the disruption in the temple that set loose the chain of events that led to Jesus's death. But John interprets it differently. For him, it's the, the story of Lazarus that was the final straw that broke the camel's back. It was the raising of Lazarus that got them together to set in motion the final plot that would succeed in robbing Jesus of his life, you see. All right. Um, so, the um, when Jesus encounters Martha, uh, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus says to her, uh, your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that he will rise again on the last day. Jesus asks her, uh, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, do you believe this? Somehow her believing this is important. He demands faith of Martha. But in faith in what? That's an interesting question. What was precisely the faith that Jesus was demanding? In the general resurrection? Well, she gave that at the very beginning. I know he will rise again on the last day. She asked for faith in that. She gave him faith in that. What about in Jesus's power here and now? He asks for that. She gives him that. I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. So, okay, check one, check two. How about the promise of eternal life now present? What Jesus is doing is uh, eliciting from her an ever more refined act of faith, which terminates in faith in Jesus himself as the answer to death. Jesus says, doesn't say, I uh, will use created realities as instrumental causes to bring about the resurrection from the dead. He doesn't talk like that. He doesn't, he doesn't distance himself from the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection. Somehow the solution to the problem, the terrible problem of death, is the identity of Jesus as the resurrection. I am the resurrection, not I cause the resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and that is what we are to that is by what that is that by which we live. It is that which makes us live together as sheep of the shepherd of the shepherd. The gospel, John tells us that Jesus groaned and wept. You know, he, the, he sighed from the depths. And then the shortest sentence in the Bible is this two-word thing, and Jesus wept. Well, a, have you ever wondered about why he wept or groaned? I mean, think, try to think about this. Um, does he know who he is? Yes. Does he know his power? Yes. Is he surprised by his power? No. Is he always discovering his potential? Does he surprise himself? No. Does he know what he's going to do? Yes. Is good news just around the corner? Yes. So why does he groan and weep? I, I, I tell you what, I was, in Columbus, we've got a parish, St. Patrick's, and just down the road, a good friend of mine runs a funeral home, Bobby Ryan is his name. Anyway, I've been to more funerals there than I care to recount. Uh, but if I knew that the Lord had given me power to raise the dead, even after they've been embalmed, and I strolled down the block to, to Egan Ryan Funeral Home, and I knew that I was about to work a stupendous miracle <laughs> and raise this guy from the, you know, the flowers and the, the good wishes and the people saying, doesn't he look natural? Uh, <laughs> if I were going to rescue him from this final indignity, and I knew I was about to rescue him from this final indignity, uh, uh, I wouldn't be groaning and weeping. I'd be rather cheerful. <laughs> Oh, death, you think you've got it, but I've got your number. I'd be kind of chortling, you know? Uh, why is he groaning and weeping? You'd think he'd be smiling at least. But Jesus, uh, the gospel makes it clear, he is truly disturbed. Jesus is disturbed by his enemy, which is death whom he hates. I mean, this is what we have to understand about Jesus. Uh, he sympathizes with us. He doesn't just, 
he's not just content in his victory, he also is disturbed with us by death because death is his enemy. Death is his mortal enemy. And death is his enemy. Death is what he hates. Why? Because he loves man. Because he loves woman. Uh, and he hates the loss that death brings. What losses does death entail? Well, death, as we've said yesterday with the theology of Rahner, emphasizes the fact that death is the death of the whole man, which means um, the death, death entails at the least the loss of memory. That's what Sheol was all about, when you can no longer remember and praise God. Your memory is gone. Uh, the, the way that your past, which makes you what you are, your power to remember is taken away by death. More radically, death removes relationships. You know, uh, the relationship you had and experience, at least the relationship that you experienced, is gone. You have memory, but you don't have the person. The loss of senses, you you experience the loss of your sense life which is what allows you to know the world in sensible particulars. Your world, therefore, is gone with death. The loss of body also, because what's left is not a body, really, properly speaking. It's the remains of a body, but not a body. And, that, and of course, the loss of body means the loss of place. Where is your place in the world when you don't have a place? Where are you when there's no where that applies to you? How, what kind of existence can you have? Um, the loss of your body means your loss of the, your place in the world. Uh, most uh, biblically interesting and, and frightening, death involves, through decay, the loss of our face. You know, our, our face is going to corrupt, be corrupted. And it's the face that signifies the imago, the image of God in us. The very sign by which we are alive in God and are the images of God gradually turns into dust. God formed us out of the dust, but death is the reversal of God's original design for us because it turns us back into dust. From dust we are created but by death, we are uncreated. Death represents the undoing of God's creative act, you see. The whole point of making us is uh, under assault with the reality of death. Okay. Jesus is also groaned and he is disturbed in spirit more radically by sin, which, as we saw yesterday, is that which causes death. Death in this context is not an inevitable end and span to biological life. Death here in this setting is something unnatural, freakish, unwilled by God. But behind death, Jesus is likewise disturbed by Satan, who is, by, uh, in the Gospel of John, a murderer from the beginning, and a desecrator of the truth, see? Uh, desecration in the Gospel of John means uh, defiling the truth of God, lying about the truth of God. And lying about the truth of God means lying about the Father, who Jesus reveals, the Father and his love for us and his care for us. The lie is denying who the Father is, and the lie is denying who the Son is in relationship with the Father. And the lie is what, that lie is what is behind sin, and that sin is what ultimately behinds our death. And that is what Jesus hates and is disturbed by and weeps in the face of, and then attacks with the, full, with the force of his divinity. Also, one final thing. Jesus is disturbed by the absence of faith. I mean, the, the loss, the rejection of faith uh, for Jesus, the rejection of faith involves sin and death and destruction and the undoing of the image of God. All of that is entailed in the refusal of belief. So Jesus is most of all 
offended by the lack of faith, right? That's what offends Jesus. What shall we do to do the works of God, Jesus asks in the Gospel of John. And the answer is, this is the work of God. Believe in the one that he has sent. See? Believe in the one that he has sent. So uh, Jesus is disturbed by the absence of faith, which contains in itself all of the things that we've mentioned above. All of the horrors of death are contained in this. And so there is a real, not just a, a speculative, but a real urgency to Jesus' question to Martha. Do you believe this? Everything rides on the answer to that question. Now, Jesus' love for Lazarus, as I've said, is personal, intense. Lazarus is one of Jesus' own personal sheep. He does respond in time. It's a curious, phrase, it's a curious line in the Gospel of John uh, because he, he delays his response. Jesus hears that Lazarus is ill, and he doesn't go right away. He waits two days, and then when he goes get, get there, Lazarus is dead. Uh, now, the interesting thing is the Gospel tells us that it was because he loved him that he delayed. You'd think that if he loved him, he'd have gotten there post-haste. Uh, because, but because he loved him, he delayed. Why? Because he wanted the glory of God to shine forth in his beloved sheep, Lazarus. He wanted to display the full glory of God in him, and that was the favor, the grace that he accorded him. Okay. Now we come to this. Um, Jesus uh, goes through the same dialogue basically with Mary, and then they go to the tomb. Where have you laid him? Jesus says, roll away the stone. And what does uh, uh, Martha say? Lord, she says, it is four days. It has been four days. Surely there will be a stench. This is uh, the first thing to note here is the four days. Lord, it has been four days. Uh, that's interesting because there was a belief in that time that spirits stayed near the tomb, uh, their tomb, after they died for three days. But at the fourth day, the spirit is supposed to be entirely gone. So there's no life. If, if you're dead after three days, you're uber, uber dead after four. <laughs> All right, so Lord, it has been four days. Uh, and then, of course, there's the natural decomposition of the body. Surely there will be a stench. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Roll away the stone. So, now they roll away the stone, and Jesus cried, Lazarus, come forth. I asked this yesterday, or answered it briefly. I hope you forgot it so that the answer will seem fresh. Um, <laughs> the, but the, the question is, when was the miracle of Lazarus first noted as a miracle? Was it when he came forth in his uh, grave clothes? You know, if you ever think about how you'd move in grave clothes, you're tied up. You know, you can't walk. But somehow he got out of the tomb and appeared. Was that the moment when the miracle was first recognizable? No. The first uh, moment the, the miracle was recognizable when they rolled open the tomb and there was no stench. There was no smell. There should have been. There wasn't. That was the first clue that something had really happened. You know, uh, someone the other day asked about the incorrupt bodies of saints. Uh, sometimes uh, you, a very holy person dies, and uh, there's an odor of sanctity in the room after the person dies. There's a smell of flowers and so on. Did I ever see the movie Everyday Saints? No? Okay, never mind then. Uh, anyway, someone dies, and there is a, a holy person dies, a freakish saint dies, and, and as they die, the room is filled with the smell of flowers. You know? Sometimes that happens at a holy death. Sometimes when you, uh, when you move bodies from one Trappist cemetery to another or, or something like that, you will, you will come across an incorruptible, some, a body that has not decayed. What's going on? Is it the resurrection? No. No, it's not. Uh, these are not the resurrection. I think that these phenomena, the flowers at the, at the advent of a holy death, or the incorrupt bodies are phenomena that serve as a metaphor or sign 
of what God is doing with these people. It's not resurrection from the dead, not yet, but it is a sign of the process, the natural end result of the process of death being interrupted. See, it's not resurrection, it's death interrupted. When Lazarus was, there was no stench, it was the fact that death, which left to itself does destroy memory, does destroy relationships, does destroy your place in the world. All of those natural results of death are somehow suspended and uh, put in advance by virtue of your relationship with Jesus. See, death would result in Sheol. Death would result in, I think, philosophically, annihilation. I, I, I know the arguments about rationality, but I still think there has to be on a philosophical level some substrate of rationality. Take away the substrate, you take away the exercise of the power. That may be wrong, I don't, and I certainly don't claim anything to the contrary, but I, all I say is I'm puzzled by this, all right? But death, I think, in its natural train brings about the personal annihilation and the facing of the image of God in the human person and uh, the undoing of God's creative purpose in creating man. Somehow our relationship with Jesus as the good shepherd stops that from happening. It's a divine act. It's an intervention. The raising of Lazarus was a divine act. Ra Lazarus was not raised to resurrection life. Lazarus was raised back to his ordinary life. That's what's signified by the fact that he still had his grave clothes on. You know, He comes forward and he's still wrapped up. That's why Jesus says, unbind him and let him go free. He does that to say uh, he st Lazarus still wears his death clothes, which means that he's still wrapped in death. And in fact, Lazarus will have to die again. Uh, and oddly enough, by virtue of the same act by which Jesus will die. Uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead. He became a cause of faith in Jesus, and therefore he became a target of death himself. The second time, they were going to kill Lazarus because by reason of him, people were believing in Jesus. So he was subject to death not once, but twice. He might complain about that. Uh, <laughs> But, the, but Jesus uh, raises him, and he's raised not to immortality, but to mortality. So it's not about the resurrection that Lazarus is, is raised into, but he is raised as a sign, see? The sign is that the natural range, reach, power, and extension of death is interrupted by virtue of his relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, to translate all of this back to the question of the immortality of the soul, my hunch, and it is only a hunch, okay? Only a hunch. I'm not claiming anything more than that. But my hunch is that on our own, the human soul would survive in something like Sheol, in a shadowing, impersonal, non-personal kind of existence. Not quite nothing, but as near to nothing as it's possible to be, and still be. That's the kind of immortality, naturally, that we would have. But there's an act of God, an act of God by which the soul continues to exist by virtue of its relationship with Jesus, and it exists in glorying him and glorifying him in virtue of the relationship with him and as a pledge for future glory. You exist as a play, we, we talk about the Eucharist that way, a sacred banquet in which Christ becomes our food, the memory of his passion is celebrated, the soul is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. Lazarus is the pledge of future glory, you see, in the Gospel of John. It's not the future glory, but it's a pledge of future glory. And I think the immortality of the soul, understood in the light of Christian faith, is just that. It is the, a pledge of future glory given to us. That is gospel immortality of the soul. Thank you very much. Do we have time for questions? We, we have time for a few questions. I'm sure there's only a couple. <laughs> yes. 
So it's been years since I've read Aquinas and Plato, uh, sorry, Aristotle and Plato on the soul, but to go way back to the beginning of your talk, can you say a little more about why the reality of death would pose a problem for the immortality of the soul, given the relationship between... Well, if, if you assume that the soul is... There is no problem if you're a Neoplatonist, because the real self is the soul, and it's not material, so of course you can survive death. The real problem is form and matter. If you assume that the relationship between body and soul is form and matter, uh, form can't exist without matter. Uh, the matter, the, there's no such thing as a form of tableness or podiumness without that of which it is made. Take away the wood, you take away the podium. Uh, take away the matter, you also take away the form. That would mean that if you take away the body, uh, then you would also seemingly take away the soul because there isn't any subsistent form of table without table. There's no subsistent form of man without the body of man. That's the problem. It, again, from an Aristotelian key. Um, I think what can be kind of confusing when we're talking about death and life is that like, between the Old Testament, New Testament, and now Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy, there's some terms we're using. Um, and so I would ask... I'm almost kind of asking them to translate because the New Testament uses like two terms for death, thanatos and necrosis. Thanatos is like death of spiritual life of the soul, and then necrosis is obviously biological death. And then also there's two written terms for life, zoas and theos. Could you maybe kind of translate that? Like, is, is the form the principle of zoas, or bios is matter the principle of? And when the when matter dies, is it necrosis or thanatos? Uh, I think that it's uh, it's the death of uh, well, biblical and biblical anthropology. It's the death of the whole person. The I think that by virtue of our being created as God God's image, uh, what you have is not bios but zoe. So I think that, but the zoe itself, according to uh, uh, Zoe itself is at risk. If, if Zoe is united formally to the essence of the human person, or is that has that relationship, then even Zoe is at risk. You could say that it's not, but then you're t positing an independent, almost divine principle in a human being, which does exist independently of matter. So the question is, does soul exist independently of matter? Does life exist independently of matter? properly or not. I think that there's an interesting uh, question here about uh, normative anthropology. Um, there's a, uh, Paul in his early epistles talks about uh, not just soul and body, but spirit, soul, and body, okay? And I think my intuition, and this is all, I have not been able to develop this in a, in a way that I'm satisfied with, but um, there is a spirit, and which is distinct from soul. And what is spirit distinct from soul? It is the inbuilt capacity for a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God. It's not the actuality of it, because then you'd be born with faith, and faith would be coterminous with human nature. But if, if, but if God makes us in his image, and if part of being the image of God is a created capacity to relate to God on a personal level, then that, that's what I'm hinting at here in this talk, that when Jesus makes us his sheep, he's acting on and building on the inbuilt God-given capacity to have that relationship with him. That dimension of us which has the capacity for that relationship is spirit, and it is that uh, which uh, can uh, exist in relationship to Jesus after death. And, and so I think that might be, a, you maybe could develop an answer along those lines. Time for uh, one more question. And so uh, one kind of thing I've heard about people that uh, do not really believe in sort of the uh, soul of uh, like Christians uh, is that uh, like early on in the, New Old Testament, you see the Hebrews do not really seem to have a concept of an afterlife. Right. So, I mean, do you see that as an issue? or? Is that well, I think that, I, here's, here, here's, this is my thought on this uh, the other night. Um, 
Sheol, and, and in one way, we're tempted to think of the Old Testament as superseded by the New, that whatever the Old Testament had, the New has, the only better. But, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure that does justice to this. I think that there are abiding elements of the revelation given in the Old Testament that still uh, are in force. One of them is the reality of Sheol as the shadowy realm of the dead. I think that um, that's what we have awaiting us independently of the intervention of God, uh, independently of a special intervention of God. The natural terminus of human life is Sheol, the place of no relationship, no thanksgiving. So I think that it, it abide, that still abides, and that is what I, the next question may be, what happens to people who don't believe in Jesus? And I, I don't know, but I mean, uh, but Sheol may feature into it, you see. A place of potency rather than act. Forever unrealized potency. I do not know, though. Well, that's cheery note. Okay, go with Father Corbett and Professor Marshall for uh, coming down and giving the talk. So, thank you.